Welcome to When Life Falls Apart, a podcast where we journey through the transformative experiences of grief, trauma, and the messiness of life. I've invited Alexa Bergeron to come and talk about ulcerative colitis and chronic illness today. We go into ulcerative colitis, alopecia, and the healing that can come via chronic illness. For most people who suffer from chronic illness, this is not something that is always accessible. And I wanted to invite Alexa to come share some of her experience around not necessarily healing her chronic illness, but finding a way to be with what the experience brings on a daily basis for her. I hope you enjoy the show and let's get started. Thanks for coming, Alexa. Hi, it's so great to be here with you, Carolina. You're coming here today to talk to me about chronic illness. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you experienced chronic illness? Yeah, so I'm just noticing as I'm sitting here that a few things to name to help me get present. So I'm noticing I feel pretty vulnerable in my body and my heart rate is a little fast and my voice feels a little shaky and these are things that often come up when talking about um, the various illnesses that I've lived with. So just want to name that first. Yeah, thank you for doing so. I think it's so important to really honor the processes that have to occur for us to talk about the places in us that are really vulnerable. Exactly. Yeah. And to do it in a way that's actually supportive and helpful for both myself and for the people listening. So on that note, the first time, um, the first experience that I had with a chronic illness was when I was a little girl, probably... I think from the time I was born, I had really severe eczema. The peak of it was when I was eight years old and um, I was just completely covered in rashes. God, it was so challenging on so many levels because I was, I remember, I can remember feeling at that time so um, like devastatingly insecure. And I was so terrified to go to school because I didn't want people to see me. Like, I was very aware that I looked really different and that I looked kind of scary, or that was my perception, at least. And that was definitely um, affirmed in my environment. Like, kids made fun of me, and it was pretty pretty brutal, as it can be in elementary school, when you're sticking out in some way or another. So this, at least this first chronic illness experience, made you stand out in a way in which you did not want to. Yes, definitely. And that actually is a theme that continues on throughout (laughs) that you're picking up on already, of course. Yeah, so there was, um, there was both like this, like wanting to hide and not be seen and, um, kind of an ability to hide if I were to go out in the world. And in particular, growing up in South Florida too, which is where this was happening, It was really hard to cover what was happening um, on my body because it was so hot. And that would also draw attention. Like if I tried to wear longer sleeves or um, pants in the the South Florida heat, it was also stuck out in different ways. As a child, what did you make up about yourself 
when you were having this experience? Yeah. What were the stories or the beliefs that maybe even got formed at that time? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, just that it was painful to be in my body and that my body was in a safe place to be. And I was interesting now because my whole life is dedicated <laughs> to being in my body and helping other people be in their bodies and using the body as, which it absolutely has been, and we'll circle back to this, but um, the body is the way to healing. And at that time, it was, yeah, it was the last place I wanted to be. And I was pretty stuck and frozen and not sure what to do with that, especially as a child when um, at least a lot of the children around me seemed pretty free in their bodies and playful and um, just open to experimenting and doing different things that kids do. So what ended up happening? Because it seems like it has cleared up. Yeah. What what, what happened there? Right. So... Like I said, the peak of it was around eight years old. And then over time, it started to, I think I started to outgrow it. And throughout that time, too, um, my wonderful mom was very um, active in trying to get me help. And we tried a lot of different progressive treatments like acupuncture and um, meditation and different things that never actually really stuck in the moment. Um but eventually, I started to grow out of it, and my skin did get a bit clearer. Just at the time when it started to clear up is when I started developing symptoms of the illness that I currently live with now, which is ulcerative colitis, which is um, a chronic digestive disease that most people have um, very little understanding about. Say a little bit about what is ulcerative colitis and what it looks like for you to live with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So ulcerative colitis is a digestive illness and also an autoimmune disease, depending on who you're talking to, though. There's actually very little cohesive understanding about many digestive illnesses. And while there are a lot of different and thankfully wonderful medications for a lot of people, um, and different ways to treat it, I think my understanding is that there's not a great understanding in the field about what causes it and um, how to help heal it, as opposed to just treating the symptoms. So um, so ulcerative colitis is, if we look at it from an autoimmune disease perspective, basically, at its essence, inflammation of the colon of the large intestine, and also the large intestine is recognizing itself as an invader in the body. So the immune system is very overactive because it's um, trying to fight the immune system in the gut, and in particular in the large intestine and the colon. So some of the symptoms of that and what that looks like in daily life include um, chronic diarrhea, a lot of urgency, often bloody diarrhea, those are the biggest ways that showed up for me in my life. And a lot of pain, a lot of lower abdominal pain, um, difficulty with different types of foods, and just a lot of difficulty digesting. It's also important to say that this disease um, especially, and then a lot of digestive illnesses in the family, um, for instance, Crohn's disease and IBS, exist on a spectrum. 
So some people with ulcerative colitis are hospitalized often, um, can't absorb much, if any, of their food. For me, in my life, it's been quite manageable, though uncomfortable, very uncomfortable and very difficult for quality of life, and I've managed to live a pretty pretty normal, relatively healthy life. When it's the worst, what, would, what does your day look like? So at its worst... And I'm trying to think because over the past year, it's, I've had a few episodes that have been really challenging. At its worst, I'm having probably having diarrhea at least four to five times a day, at most nine to 11 times a day. Mm. Oftentimes that can be through the night too, so it interrupts sleep. Mm. And for me, one of the most challenging symptoms is urgency. So I've often, um, as a kid and as an adult, had accidents. Like if I have to go to the bathroom, I have to go that split second. And I could be as close as 10 feet away from a toilet. And if it hits me, I might not, I still might not make it to the toilet. Like that kind of urgency around it. So real lack of control. Yes. In this particular part of your body. Yes, complete lack of control. And also, um, I'm just thinking like at its worst, I think... That's definitely the most challenging symptom. And then also just difficulty eating food, like not being able to enjoy a meal without having some kind of pain or reaction to it. And also I'll add, I think the most difficult symptom, regardless of what's happening physically, without a doubt, the most challenging piece about it is where my mind is at and what my perspective is on it in any given moment. So say a little bit more, what what kind of perspectives are helpful and what kind of perspectives are more challenging? So, God, that's such a great question. <laughs> For me, um, when I'm at my best or my, like, the best version of myself in relationship to my UC, the ulcerative colitis, is really just that, that I'm having a relationship with it, that I'm paying attention to it, that I'm um, being tender toward it and recognizing that it's a part of my body that's needing attention and care and love and listening to it, um, taking the time to slow down and listen to it, hear what it has to say, and then give it what it needs And then on the other end of that is um, fighting it, which I would say is the most challenging piece for me is when I'm fighting it and resisting it. And in that place, my perspective can get really narrow and a bit darker and more hopeless. And same exact thing can be happening um, externally, or in this case, it's internally because it's happening inside of me. But physically is what I mean, that the same thing could be happening But if I'm having a conscious and loving relationship with it, I feel so much better. So, so much better. And everything feels really okay. I'm imagining, um, and I don't know if this is a good metaphor, but if you have a little child who's maybe really upset or really Mm -hmm. angry, Mm -hmm. And if you start to get really angry back, mm-hmm. it just escalates. Right. But if you might be able to meet that child with maybe some understanding or some compassion right. or try to see what is your unmet need, what's really going on here, that the situation at least might be able to stay the same or even 
decrease. Right. And I wonder if there's some correlation in how you're treating yourself and maybe in the same way as maybe like a, a kind parent would treat a child or yes. something like that. Yes, absolutely. I think of that so much and um, especially in the way of regulating nervous systems and um, so much about coping, I think, with many different illnesses, but I'll just speak for myself for this one. Yeah, it's about finding a grounding, regulated place in my body where I can be with it. And I think that relates back to parenting a young child that doesn't yet have the capacity to process things, perhaps on a more cognitive, intellectual level, but can feel in their bodies um, if someone is supporting them through their own, through the adult's regulation, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is that the child has an underdeveloped nervous system and needs to sort of lean on the parent's developed nervous system. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. Another piece of that, too, that I think about is, um, so I was 11 years old when I started having symptoms of colitis, which I, in retrospect, think um, because there's there have been a string of different illnesses, each one that started at the end of another, that there are many different layers to physical illness, at least for me. But because I was 11 when it started, I, over the years, have started to think of myself at that age as living in my belly and in my colon, to be really specific, and and have felt that, too, in a deeper way, like have actually felt that part of me living in this part of my body and have worked really hard to give myself and my 11-year-old self the love and care that I really needed at the time when this started happening that I didn't really get to have. You said that you had a string of chronic illnesses Mm -hmm. throughout your life. Mm -hmm. Was there um, other ones that showed up in your childhood or in your young adulthood? Yeah, yeah. So um, let's see here. When I was about 16 years old, I was doing this type of alternative treatment for um, UC that helped. And I had some relief from my symptoms for a little bit. And shortly after, um, it's probably like eight or so months after, when I was 17, it was the summer before my senior year of high school. And um, I got alopecia, which for anyone who doesn't know, is basically like a clinical term for balding, also an autoimmune disease, where your hair follicles are recognizing that part of your body as a foreign invader and start attacking itself. So your hair falls out. This also exists on a spectrum. So um, for a lot of people, they might just lose a certain spot on their head or on their body. Um, In my case, I lost all of my hair for a period of time. So I was totally bald on my head. My eyelashes fell out at some point, my eyebrows, um, body hair as well. So it had reached the full extent possible. And I'm sure as many people can relate to at this time, and especially for me, I remember going into the summer before my senior year of high school feeling incredibly insecure, so insecure. And I placed so much emphasis um, on hair. And I remember um, 
so clearly I knew I was going to take my senior pictures the next year after the summer. And I really wanted long hair. And one of my goals for the summer was to grow my hair out, which obviously did not end up happening. <laughs> Life had other plans in store for me. So so you lost your hair in during that summer? During that summer, yeah. So you wanted to grow your hair out, but you ended up losing it all. Yes. I wanted to grow my hair out, which was so connected to me, um, to my self-worth and, yeah, worthiness, I, identity, um, identity as a young girl, what I thought of as a beautiful girl at the time. A lot of emphasis placed on this one particular part of my physical body. I think within about... Two weeks, I was almost completely bald, and then within the month of probably June, I think, or like the first month of summer, I was totally bald. What was that like to be 16 years old and losing, I mean, I'm imagining big chunks of your hair falling uh-huh. out. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, big chunks of hair falling out in the shower. I was terrified, and at the time, I was really terrified that I had something more serious going on. And I think I remember a moment, too, a dark, hopeless place around it that I was actually disappointed to find out that there was nothing more serious going on. Like this was just happening for um, what seemed at the time like no reason, which changed pretty quickly because I can see now. And I did see then actually soon after those first months that there was a huge purpose to that happening. And and what was that purpose? Um, I look back at this experience in my life as the one that helped me start to love myself, like really start to love myself. I come from a long line of wonderful human beings, my family and my ancestors, who, as far as I understand, um, used self-hatred and self-criticism as their primary coping mechanisms in life. And real deep self-love was not modeled many places around me. I don't remember seeing it that way anyway. Lots of emphasis placed on love equating to material or physical beauty, all things outside of self, not within self. So this was directly challenged by your body saying, okay, well, you're not going to be traditionally beauty in this culture. Exactly, Carolina, exactly, yes. Yeah, so I hit a point, um, I remember that summer, I believe, where I, it was exactly that. It was like, okay, well, (laughs) shit, (laughs) this just isn't going to happen for me in the way that I thought it was going to. And there's got to be something else here. You mean inside? Inside, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's got to be some other way to feel beauty. And there was, and there, there is, of course, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this um, know that. I hope that they know that. It was definitely over the course of months that I started to feel a bit more possibility and a bit more room in my mind and in my body to explore what else might be there. If it wasn't going to be this physical beauty that I envisioned for myself, that there was still a possibility for something else. Over the course of that time, I really grew to love myself in such a deep, real way. And I could feel my beauty from the inside out. What was that like? So fulfilling. 
I remember almost feeling like, yeah, like I had figured out this secret. What was the secret that if you were to maybe say it in a couple of sentences, what was the secret that you figured out? Yeah, that everything that I was seeking outside of myself was right inside of myself and right inside my heart. That was the biggest piece of the secret, that it was all right there in my heart. Like literally, physically, that part of your body? I think more energetically, emotionally, that part of my body, yeah. Like if I turned in toward my own heart, uh, more, I mean, I think of my energetic and emotional heart in the same physical place as as the organ of the heart. But yeah, if I could feel my connection to my heart and the love within my own heart, that that was really all I needed to be okay and to feel beautiful and to feel alive and to experience all the things that I thought I would have if I was physically beautiful in the way I wanted to be. So this is quite a profound experience for a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. to what I'm hearing you say is have a direct experience of her very essence. Yes, exactly. Yes. In yes. South Florida. In South Florida, of all places. <laughs> Which, for those of you who don't know, um, in my experience, was not the place to have this discovery. <laughs> but yes, definitely, yeah, to experience my essence. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Did that relationship that developed with your heart and the energetic quality of your heart inform how you began to relate to your UC? Yes, definitely. So, of course, this has has and will continue to be a process of remembering. What I mean by remembering is awakening to the essence and the truth of who I am and why I'm meant to be here. And then forgetting. (laughs) And being on the path and falling off the path and getting back on the path and so on and so on. So that experience, without a doubt, set the foundation from which I've witnessed myself blossom in so many areas and especially in my relationship to my body as a whole and my body as one that lives and experiences chronic illness. I can imagine having these experiences and knowing, okay, if I can just love this part of myself, Mm -hmm. then everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. And you probably, you know, love it and nurture it and care for it. And it still keeps on acting up and doing the things that you don't want it to do. Yes. How do you, how do you manage that experience? Yeah. I'm so happy you brought that up because in my mind and a big part of my mind I have done so much work on myself, and I will continue to do work on myself, personal work on myself, for the rest of my life. That's such, um, that's my spiritual path. That's, that's one of my main purposes for being here on this planet and sharing it with others. So for a long time, and even still a big part of me believes this, that if I do enough work, if I love myself enough, I'm going to heal this disease this disease that so many people say, so many Western doctors especially say, um, with all due respect to them, that there is no cure to. You manage symptoms, you have flare-ups, and it's a chronic illness that you'll likely have for the rest of your life. And and in my mind, if I do enough of the work, I'm going to make it better in part of my mind. But there's another part of me that's grown bigger more recently that's 
realized that I don't think healing is actually about being symptom-free in the case of being chronically physically ill, though I think it applies to other types of illness and distress as well. I don't think it's healing is about being free of the symptoms, but rather coming back to that relationship that I was talking, speaking to earlier, having a loving relationship with the illness itself and seeing too that maybe at least for me in this lifetime, it's not meant to go anywhere. Like it's actually a way, maybe it's my way, my soul's way in this incarnation to bring me back to myself over and over and over again and to help me slow down and to help me keep remembering when I forget to turn toward love and care and that reparenting that we were talking about, that kind of loving nurturance. Maybe that's my that's my way home to myself and will be for the rest of my life. I can imagine somebody else suffering from UC hearing this and in a lot of pain right now or confusion right now mm-hmm. and yeah. not able to see this as a possibility right. that they could be okay with these symptoms. Right. Yeah. What would you say to a person who's experiencing maybe that level of doubt and pain and confusion around what they're what they're dealing with yeah oh first I would say that my heart goes out to you and I so understand and I feel that way most of the time (laughs) I feel that way a lot of the time I think that's part of it as well as having those moments that's part of the forgetting right the falling off of the path and if we're blessed enough to have uh, people around us or even people on podcasts or different places, sources of inspiration that can remind us that it's all okay. Whatever it is, is really all okay. Whatever it is, we can love it. I'm wondering, how is it that you can possibly love unlovable parts mm-hmm. of yourself? Yeah. Great question that I'm sure a lot of people are asking themselves as well, whoever's listening. Well, for me, when I am actually slowing down and listening deeply enough to the parts that are present in this experience, they're actually quite lovable. (laughs) They're so sweet and tender and vulnerable They're actually the easiest ones inside of myself, if I'm thinking of myself as having this internal community of beings, which I do, the easiest to give love to because they're hurting. And that's really, for me, I know, I hear that that's, that's what they need. And I think there are so many different ways, um, so many different ways that we love, I'll say, the more challenging parts of ourselves to love rather than unlovable. That's just, again, in my case, from my perspective. One way that I've worked with loving um, my colon more is actually, this is quite personal, but so is this whole talk. (laughs) So oftentimes when I'm stuck in the bathroom, I've developed this pattern of 
shaking my head because I get frustrated with myself. And a lot of the times when I'm stuck in the bathroom, it's at a time where in my mind I need to be somewhere else, for instance, with a client or um, I'm having some kind of obligation where I'm supposed to be present somewhere, physically present somewhere. I'm stuck in the bathroom for anywhere from 15 to 40 minutes sometimes. (laughs) So I develop this completely unconscious habit of when I'm sitting there in pain, I'm having a pretty bad stomach ache, um, trying to speed this process up, like get it out, get moving on to the next thing. And I shake my head. And I've probably been doing that since I was 11 years old. I just recently realized one way that I can love myself more in that moment is actually by nodding my head and breathing And adjusting my body, it can be very easy to collapse in those moments, to um, sink in my chest for my shoulders to go forward. I'm often kind of leaning forward because I'm in pain. So I've tried, I've been practicing actually, picking my shoulders back up, making my my spine a bit taller, elongating my breath, and um, making a yes and nodding with my head instead of a shaking. And that's been really helpful for me. What difference has that made? It feels more loving in the moment. And when I feel more loving and accepting and uh, surrendering to what's happening in the moment, things really feel okay. And the sense of panic or dread or hopelessness that typically comes up in those places fades away or gets a bit quieter, at least for a few moments. And sure, it can come in and out though it helps me um, embrace what's happening, which is really, we all say I, the only two options that I have is either to resist it or embrace it. And I found over time that embracing it feels a lot better, a lot, lot better. Yeah, it seems like you've been sort of forced into love and forced into self-compassion. Totally. (laughs) Yes. And as you say that too, this is another big piece for me, When I see the things that have forced me toward self-love and compassion, I feel so grateful to them because that self-love and compassion, without a doubt, is what I cherish and love most about myself. And without uh, the colitis and the eczema and the alopecia and other things that haven't been named in this conversation... I don't know that I ever would have gotten there. You are saying that through these chronic illnesses, you gained a deeper sense of love and compassion for yourself. Do you have the capacity now to share that with others? Does this inform your work? Does it inform your intimate relationships? Does it inform your relationships to just strangers? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So in my work as a therapist, I think that the biggest thing that I bring to clients is a capacity or space rather for them to learn to love themselves. And that's very much a product of me having the space within myself to love myself. And I found in my own healing journey, as I said just a few moments ago, that self-love and compassion are the, it's the greatest medicine that I can give to myself no matter what's happening in my life. So that's a direct line of, of what I offer to others. So you sense that as the greatest medicine you can offer your clients. Yes, both my love and compassion and also the mirror where they can hopefully over time see that within themselves 
and feel that more within themselves. Because you said at the beginning of this is when you first were diagnosed with UC that there wasn't that mirroring of that love and compassion that you might have, maybe if you had, it would have made it a little bit easier to navigate the pain that you were experiencing. And so you in and of yourself might be providing that for your clients in a way in which they've never had before. Yes, exactly. That's my hope. Yeah, that's my hope. Another piece of it, too, is that you mentioned in the world and with strangers and even beyond work, one of my greatest hopes and an intention that I set for myself every day is not only to be a loving and compassionate therapist, also being a therapeutic presence in the world, so that by doing this work and by committing and recommitting over and over and over again to my own self-love and compassion, that by touching those places within myself, I can help others touch those places within themselves as well. Yeah, so to your question about how this shows up with other people in the world, um, intimate relationships and strangers like I'm reminded of people throughout my life that I've met either briefly or that I've had the gift of spending longer time with whose presence, just their mere presence, regardless of what they're doing or saying, is so deeply healing It's like just sitting with them is the most softening quality, like like taking a warm bath, like being in healing waters. And I attribute that experience, what I imagine that that person might feel inside is a lot of love and acceptance toward themselves because that's what's elicited in me when I'm with them. So they're somehow like, to go back to what we originally said about that young child who's having heart emotions or temper tantrum or something, Mm -hmm. your tummy and you go right to this part in you and you're Mm -hmm. with it with acceptance and love. Yeah. You've received that from others in your life. Yes. Yeah. And as you said that too, it's just imagining as well, like my colon bathing in the healing waters of presence. (laughs) So my hope in extending that quality of love and acceptance is my um, intention, at least, is that the more that I cultivate that within myself, the more I can give people permission to feel it within themselves as well, just by being, just by my living experience and example. That's my hope. Would you say that you specialize in in chronic illness in your practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I specialize in working with people with chronic illness, physical illness and mental illness, as well as people living with addiction and grief and loss and a variety of other things. Those are the biggest sticking out to me right now. Yeah, I've often seen that what we struggle with the most Mm -hmm. is what we end up working with the most right if we're in the helping professions right it's Mm -hmm. where we're drawn to that journey absolutely a dear friend of mine uh was we were talking the other day and she was saying how when you're putting your name out there as a therapist and explaining what you specialize in and who you work with you're often outing yourself and what a courageous 
thing that is to do, to out yourself and put it out there to the world and let people know that you're available for those same things. So when therapists say they work in special arenas, you can be pretty sure they have some shadow material in those things. <laughs> I don't want to say that for certain, but that's that's true for me. That's I would I would hope that I, I would hope that I they would, would hope so too. Yeah. I don't want to go to somebody with a problem and all they know about <laughs> it is what they've read in a textbook. Right? Yeah. I want them to mm-hmm. know the depths of it. I mm-hmm. want them to know the pain of it mm-hmm. so that I'm not sitting with another person who thinks they can fix me through their head. Right, right. And only yes, when we know it in our bones can we just sit in the discomfort of it and give space for it to change on its own and its own rhythm and time as it's ready to. Where can people reach you if they want to get more information about your practice or even to talk with you about what they heard today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you can reach me through my website. It's www.alexabergeron.com. And all of my contact information is right on there, and I'd be so happy to hear from anyone about anything that might have touched you today and I'm very open to continue talking and having this conversation thank you so much for having me here today Carolina it's such a pleasure to be with you thank you very much and I'll put all that information in the show notes so people can easily contact you great and I deeply appreciate your time thank you